0: Hello, I'm Ariel Kroon and I'm Christina Della Rocha. Welcome to season 3 of Solarpunk Presence. the podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a
1: future we'd like to live in. Because if solarpunk has a genre of fiction, dreams
0: about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future. Solarpunk is a movement rolls up its sleeves and gets down to the business of bringing it about in the present. Welcome to episode 3.4 of Solarpunk Presents, in which Ariel interviews Joy Ayoub, the creator behind the podcast The Fire These Times. Before we continue, I'd like to break in to say I hope you've been enjoying our podcasts. We put a lot of work into them to make them interesting for you. But we could use your support. Join our Patreon at www.patreon.com/solarpunkpresence for a few dollars a month for early access to episodes and bonus content. That would really, really help us out. Or recommend us to a friend, or write us a review. All of that will help us grow our audience and keep creating great interviews and discussions for you to listen to. Thanks. And now for this week's episode. Joey, could you begin by
1: introducing yourself, who you are and what you do?
2: Sure, sure, sure. Well, thanks for having me. First of all, what do I do? I do a bunch of stuff. So my name is Joey. <laughs> uh, Joey Ayub. Um, I grew up in, in Lebanon uh, and I currently live in Switzerland. I've been here for three years, uh, finishing my, my doctorate. I have had a podcast since kind of COVID started, really, uh, called The East Times. So it's been, well, exactly three years now. Uh, in which I explore on a weekly basis uh, different topics, uh, usually around themes that I I find are like underexplored. Uh, so this can be anything from like internationalism between different nationalities that aren't usually in conversation with one another. It could be about solarpunk, obviously. And yeah, I write. I'm an editor at Shadow Mag, and I do some smaller stuff from time to time. That's me.
1: So, why did you start your podcast? It was, you know, um, just before the pandemic or middle of the pandemic. What was the impetus behind it? It's a one person mm. show. I mean, I'm having some difficulty even doing half the work on this podcast <laughs> with Christina, and we only publish twice a month. And I'm I'm saying that because I can't imagine deciding to do this weekly and doing it so well.
2: So, oh, thank you. Make that well, decision. <laughs> uh, I I started literally in March of 2020. So it is exactly three years now. And uh, so at the very beginning of, well, at least when the pending was announced as, so, as such, I started, so I had a previous uh, iteration. I had another podcast in my, with my old blog called Hummus for Thought, and I had named it uh, such as well. Uh, but it kind of died out. I was doing it with a friend of mine, a Syrian refugee in the US, and we were not very organized. So it kind of died out. And that's, I knew that I wanted to pick it up again. I wanted to do podcasting. I, l- I love the format and I love listening to it. I've been listening to podcasts for mm-hmm. goodness knows how long now and I have a ridiculous amount of to listen on my lists. and oh, me
0: too. Uh,
2: <laughs> I guess it felt like kind of a natural thing as and you know lockdowns and whatnot kind of gave me the excuse since we were sitting at home anyway and yeah I had so much I wanted to say. I had just come back from Lebanon and uh things were not going too well to put it uh mildly and obviously i mean listeners of your podcast can listen to the one with jd harlock who got into it even more and i felt i guess i had this need you know i felt i had this need to talk about what's on my mind and luckily some folks found that worth their time <laughs>
1: in this most recent season I've noticed that you're really focusing in on solar punk. And I wanted to ask you what first drew you to solar punk?
2: I, so I first encountered it on my own podcast. I asked guests at the end of each episode to kind of recommend free books or movies or whatever. And one of them, Emmy ben- Bevan C., uh, we were talking about uh, the online far right and extremism and all of that stuff. Towards the end, they said, anything along the lines of Afrofuturism or Solopunk, punk uh, because and that's I'm kind of paraphrasing and there were I'm amazed of how people can still keep maintain hope in today's world I just remember thinking solopunk punk is a you know and it's such a it's such a cool sounding term in my mind mm-hmm. you know it's such something that I'm immediately gonna google this now which is what I did and I ended up <laughs> basically buying all of the books that have solopunk in the title essentially and <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I kind of devoured some of the stories and immediately clicked that this is what I want to do. And as with m- many folks, I looked it up on YouTube, uh, Andrew's video came up uh, called What is Solar Punk from the channel Andrewism. I had Andrew on a couple of times as well. In fact, the second time was with Be- with Emmy, the one who recommended Solar Punk in the first place. And so uh, I started this year's episodes. um with uh, solar punk slash sci-fi so the first three episodes are on solar punk and the fourth one is on star trek with uh, jesse gender and the reason i did so is that a lot of the podcast is very heavy i tend to talk about topics like uh, war crimes genocide uh, genocide denial uh, kind of the trauma behind it I talk a lot about, uh, we've had a number of episodes on Ukraine, uh, which, you know, obviously difficult on Syria as well, sometimes on both and, you know, other, other topics, but for the most part, it's either heavy as in, it's, it's generally not easy to listen to. And I know that, or it's not necessarily heavy, but kind of, it takes up a sort of a mental space that I feel always need to be balanced out. If that makes sense with something like solar punk if I'm doing an episode or I'm doing, I'm redoing some research or whatever, that research or that episode gives me more questions than answers. I find myself very unsatisfied and it's not that I think everything can be answered. That's not the case, Mm -hmm. but solar punk for me kind of fills that need of at least trying to imagine what, well, what the future might look like if we actually fix certain things and start to heal and, Mm-hmm. and find some kind of balance maybe with nature and you know all of that stuff and I like that it's open-ended I like that it's very new I literally thought um, I found myself at one point realizing that okay well I've basically read everything that's been written more or less on solo punk and I've I went on like podcast search engines and wrote solo punk and I've listened to everything there is to listen you know I'm always exaggerating but you know to some extent it was true and so that basically means that right now I can just do solar punk i can just talk about it you know i can because it's literally open ended obviously there are certain things to to kind of uh meet in terms of criteria for it to even count as solar punk but yeah it was very exciting at a time when again like with the beginning of the pandemic hope wasn't exactly <laughs> uh you know in excess we were definitely uh it was a dark time <laughs> in many time in many in many ways it still is but Solarpunk punk allowed me to to yeah to balance things out a bit. I guess I don't know if I, I guess that makes sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it it does. It does. Solar punk really works as this tool for imaginative expansion and promoting hope and and what people like to call hope punk as a genre. The mm-hmm. idea of of taking hope and and really forcing it into these dark places um, or forcing these dark places. And, and issues to towards the light and towards what might go right with exactly with uh, uh, current events or how can we not just ask questions about them, but how can we ask better questions? Uh, mm-hmm. Like you said, we don't have all the answers, but we do have all these questions that can lead us into more positive lines of inquiry.
2: Yeah, and, and we have some answers, right? Like, it's not like, for example, if we think about global warming. I mean, there are some things we still don't know, but overall, it's not a huge mystery. It's not. We're not talking about the universe, where okay, we know that there are most things we don't know about global warming. We, we kind of understand it pretty well. Mm-hmm. We more or less know in terms of like where the science is at, what needs to be done. We know we need to reduce CO two. We we know we need to do rewilding. We know we. You you sit down with a climate scientist, as I've done, uh, on the podcast as well, and you say, well what should be done? And they have an answer. Again, it's not like it's not this mysterious thing that uh, is out of our control. And in fact, one of the many things about global warming is it just feels that if we take this kind of bird's eye view where where this alien species like looking down, we would be yelling like, you guys are so stupid. This is really dumb. The fact that we can have that conclusion bothers me because it says that we're not doing what we need to be doing. And by we, I'm being very expand, expansive here, obviously. There's like a disproportionate amount of harm in the global north and among those, the rich versus the poor and so on. Right. But like, if we take this global lens, for lack of a better term, it really feels that we need to be, that this is, shouldn't be that hard, basically. It should be much easier. We're at a time when we, we've never had this much information. We've never had in, in history as many people who are educated, for example, or empowered or whatnot. In many ways, life is much better now than it was like 100 years ago. In other ways, it's not. Mm-hmm. And so supposedly, or one would assume that we have enough of, you know, we have the tools to kind of just make things better. And yet, that's not really the case, at least most of the time. There are lots of good things happening, of course. And for me, Solarpunk punk is one of the um, ways that's allowing me in, in, in any case to expand that imaginary mm-hmm. in a way that is clearly desperately needed. Mm-hmm. And as someone who does cultural studies, so basically I just watch a bunch of movies and series and read books, it does, it did feel like the motifs and the themes and either cyberpunk or post-apocalyptic themes and whatnot, that it's like, well, we, we've just done this guys. We've, we've, we've done enough of this. We know, you know, we can imagine what a zombie apocalypse look like. We, we know what these things look like in terms of like the general themes of, of like the future is going to be bad yeah we know you know like most people know this by now it's not we need to kind of try and not make it bad <laughs> yes. we need to make it less bad if if that's at all possible and i feel like yeah there's there's just there's this desire to get out of this post-apocalyptic or even apocalyptic mindset and i feel like sort punk at least does that for me or helps me do that you know
1: i read recently or heard from someone, I'm, I'm not quite sure where I encountered this, but um, this idea that, yeah, we have these technical solutions to climate change and global warming, and we you know, don't have one silver bullet solution, but we have many different ones that um, scientists are working on right now, and researchers are saying, we have these tools that we can use to make the world a better place. But it's a problem of the humanities, if we're talking in academic terms, of, mm-hmm. of narrative and of politics and of the ways in which we live our lives and think about how are we going to incorporate this new technology and this new science on a sort of more global okay. scale? It's not that we don't have solutions, it's that we don't have ways in which to put them into action. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, a, a big thing... Uh been trying to get into a lot is this concept of realism what counts as realistic and obviously mark fisher had this term like capitalist realism realism and when i read that book it kind of clicked that this is what people mean usually when they say oh we have to be realistic about things it's not actually realistic you know it's not it's not like a fact-based response if we say that well i say things like well you know maybe we should not have poverty Homelessness should just not be a thing because clearly there are enough homes, you Mm -hmm. know, and so on and so forth. Usually the answer is, isn't, or the kind of, if I'm having this, you know, imagined conversation, it's not, you're wrong. Very few people disagree. You know, there are some very extreme right-wingers and quote-unquote libertarians or whatnot. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, people just want a decent society to live in and feel like, yes, it's not fair for someone to live or sleep rough on the streets. It's not fair for someone to worry about paying rent and whatnot. And if there are ways to fix this, cool. That's amazing. But it's like, well, what What if we just do it? Like, let's just do it. Let's just agree all together. And now I'm, obviously this isn't, you know, this is a, uh, how do you say this? this is like a thought experiment. Mm-hmm. Usually what what's kind of fascinating that even within a thought experiment, which in theory, should have no restrictions, because it is quite literally in your mind, there are limits to what feels realistic, because Mm -hmm. the idea is that, you know, what they say, obviously, as a writer, you have to write what you know. And for most people, that is already a limiting factor, because we live in a world that has rules and assumptions and expectations and whatnot. And we take we actually take that and we put that into the stories into the Politics that we think is "quote unquote" realistic in what counts as a science and economics, you know, and so so on and so forth. And it it was kind of this light bulb moment at one point when I don't remember which text I was reading and what. I was like, "Well, actually, it it quite doesn't have to be this way." Mm -hmm. Though you know, certain things have been done in a certain way. Those are social constructs. They can be constructed differently. And how wonderful would that be? You know, just just that. It started off as a very basic almost like a childish, and I mean this in a good way, a realization that I have a house, this person doesn't have a house, this makes no sense. And then from that, you kind of extrapolate and then obviously you complicate it with more more data input, if you want to put it that way. And you realize, well, the system that should make that just a reality isn't the system that we have. And so that led me to question the system that we have
1: the Socratic method of saying, well, if
2: this, then why? Basically. <laughs> basically. That's <laughs> yeah. it, this is, this is the thing is that it's really not rocket science. And not, not, I mean, some things are difficult. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to simplify everything. But in terms of the underlying principle, many of our problems are generally not that complicated. They are rendered complicated. They are rendered difficult too often assumptions like, again, this is not realistic. Like, oh, I'm the serious economist. I'm a serious politician. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course, I don't want to I don't want homelessness as a problem. I don't want people to sleep rough when it's cold outside, you know. And I'm just thinking of this as an example because the city I live in uh, has a lot of folks that are not finding, uh, don't have enough money to pay rent and so on. And this is one of the richest cities in the world. I live in Geneva, literally Geneva. For me, like, it doesn't click or it shouldn't anymore. You know, it just doesn't work anymore. And Solarpunk just allows me to take these alternative futures that I know are, for the most part, realistic, take them more seriously. I feel like the more we populate that imaginary, whether it's through mass culture, you know, movies, series, books, or just conversations, the easier it gets to do so. And like the, the example I always give is like, it's very easy for a five-year-old today to imagine a zombie apocalypse. Mm-hmm. It's just super easy to do. You don't, you don't need to know anything. It just, it, it just kind of pops to your mind. Anyone who's listening to this now is imagining zombie apocalypse. And I want it to be as easy, if not like easier to just imagine better futures even if it's not a zombie apocalypse, if it's like something that has to do with the future, if it's like good, quote unquote, it's always like at some huge cost. Like there was, you know, a a third world war in Star Trek, you know, in the 22nd century or whatever it is. And, or it's something like, well, we got to a point where there's no more poverty and whatnot, but that came after 100 years of struggle and stuff like that. And I'm I'm not saying that's a bad thing in and of itself. I'm just curious, As to, well, what if we just didn't need that? What if we don't need to get through a catastrophe before we learn our lesson? Like that uh, movie, The Day After Tomorrow, which is a really bad movie. Um, (laughs) But, you know, the whole, like, well, we've learned our lesson from Mother Nature, and now we're going to fix things. Like, maybe we don't need to learn our lesson, quote unquote. Maybe we can just skip the catastrophe aspect of things.
1: Yeah. What would it be like not to have to hit
2: rock bottom in order
1: to have some
2: sort of... Yeah. Why not do something else?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, from studying post-apocalyptic fiction myself, I spent a good chunk studying sort of the Christian mythos of, of, you know, there has to be an apocalypse before the new heaven and the new earth can come along. And that's mm-hmm. sort of been informing that science fiction imaginary of the end times for so long in our culture. Exactly. Uh, well, in, in Western culture, um, we we take it for granted that there things are going to be darkest before the dawn. You know, things always have to reach this nadir before um, it can start going up again. Again, that narrative, that imaginary, is what is sort of informing the ways in which we're living our lives,
2: which exactly
1: solar punk, I think, makes you more able to be able to see, oh, that's a narrative that I'm I'm assuming is reality and that I'm, I'm putting like, I'm overlaying onto my day-to-day experience. And mm. that's not actually how
2: life works. I just, I fi- I've been finding it very, very interesting that when I put that lens of like, I'm putting a solar punk lens, right. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to explore TV series and movies and whatnot of any, any kind, literally like Seinfeld, The Office. I just mm-hmm. know, like very popular series. I always, I start with things that are very popular because I, you know, lots of folks have listened to, have uh, watched them. And so I want to see, well, clearly if it had like a hundred million viewers that has had some impact on the world. It's like, okay, well, what are certain assumptions in that TV series? What does it do? What is it trying to do? Uh, Is it achieving it well? Could it have done it differently? You know, and so on and so forth. And I always find it interesting that even in, because most of those TV series are Americans and there's sort of the taboo of uh, terms like communism, quote unquote, or socialism or Even in those situations, like The Office, again, or Seinfeld, or I don't know, so many other examples, they can't take themselves too seriously. They cannot take capitalism too seriously, because otherwise there is no story to be told. Mm -hmm. You can't have a creamer mooching off Jerry Seinfeld and never paying his bills or whatnot if if their friendship was operating along capitalist logic. Mm -hmm. You can't have The Office where... We don't even know what they do most of the time because it really doesn't matter. And they know, like, at some point, it's like this, this weird insider joke, almost like you're kind of, they're letting you in on the joke. Like, they know this doesn't matter. And there's this one employee who's been there for we don't know how long and we don't know what he does there. And it's kind of like with the butt of the joke and, you know, and so on and so forth. And then when one of them, with, without too many spoilers, although I feel most folks have watched those, know what I'm talking about, when one of them becomes the boss, he fires one of his employees as if and one of his friends, not because he was doing a good job, but so that he can give the, his friend slash employee like uh, a severance package. Mm. And so they, they were like, well, this is the system we live in. We, it doesn't make much sense. So we're just going to play around with it and try and us as a team, as a, as a basically a chosen family kind of situation. Uh, we're going to just try and help each other out as much as we can. Mm -hmm. and that's fascinating to me because it's within the logic of a company we're not talking about a utopian uh, socialist whatever landscape we're talking about just a private company making paper and almost any of those examples i'm thinking of almost any of those tv series that's trying to have kind of a slice of life uh vibe to them Mm -hmm. there's always the outside world but then there's who we are you know the friends group literally in friends or seinfeld or the office or parks and recreation and whatnot the rules and and regulations or the norms that governs their lives is often very different from what they are supposed to be playing mm-hmm. as roles and when they're not like when they are supposed to be capitalistic that's when we have the darker series that's when we have things not going to a uh, like su- succession and stuff like that mm-hmm. Because you can't, you can't be a capitalist with your parents. I'm hoping, (laughs) or you can't be a capitalist with like a friend. By definition, that's not a friend. You know, like we have this, what I think David Graeber called it baseline communism and communism with a, with a lowercase c, not communism in the Soviet Union uh, uh, sense, but just in the sense of literally commonly owned stuff. Where I was like, yeah, sure. I have this book. I finished it. You can borrow it. You can keep it. You know, that sort of, that sort of thing. And so I'm mentioning all of this just to say that even in, I've been finding fascinating, I've been rewatching stuff that I watched like 20 years ago, because there are stuff like even in that series or in that universe where they are supposed to be, you know, as I said, again, like in a private company or they're supposed to be, they are not able to fully follow the logic of what they're supposed to do because you can't have a human story if you keep it capitalist. It ends up becoming like it lasts like one or two episodes. And by the second episode, someone is done and you just move on. You can't have that human connection if you keep it within that logic. And I find it interesting that even when they're not trying to do so, even when they're not trying to make a political point, they end up kind of doing it anyway, because there's no other way of having a human connection and therefore of attracting enough you know, of an audience to even make it worth their time.
0: Um,
1: it seems to me then that you know it's the connections between people and the uh, that are actually interesting um, in these shows not so much the system in which they're operating even if it's something like The Office which ostensibly is about an office (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) exactly and that's why I find so and I think that's why we we like it and The the Office specifically I've been really fascinated by that series just because of you know, most folks would go to an office, at least before the pandemic. And it's kind of it's it's weirdly bizarre in, in, a, in, a, in, in a way like you, you, you're done with your office. You come home and assuming you sit on your couch and then you watch a TV series about an office. That's quite something. I mean, it, it feels a bit dystopian, but it's interesting that even within that context, they are kind of mocking it uh, without proposing a solution because then it's no longer a comedy. But they are still mocking it, and they are kind of subverting it in some interesting ways, and kind of just like it's this whole post quote unquote postmodern thing of just not not taking those rules too seriously.
1: Thinking about it through a solar punk lens, it's the community of people, and exactly how much the what they're doing that matters. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's how they're doing it, and the ways in which they relate together, and that what we're mentioning the the communism, or uh, I've heard it uh, talked about as communalism. Yeah. yeah, the way that people interact together, yeah. and which exactly. I think is a big part of solar punk, in that it sort of emphasizes those really human ties and de-emphasizes the um, economic or political system. Or you know, I mean, that's still very important, but it's also sometimes it, it, it's very helpful to read a book or a story or something like that, where that's, that's just not the emphasis. It doesn't, that doesn't matter so much because mm-hmm. um, what matters is the way in which people are flourishing and coming together. I was going to ask you about why you decided to incorporate solar punk into your podcast, but I think we kind of covered yeah. that. Um, <laughs> Cause it started out essentially as a political podcast. Would that be sort of accurate to say? Yeah,
2: Yeah. Yeah, it is. It yeah.
1: Is. And so solar punk sort of, Intervening in that narrative of global politics, um, and so I was going to ask you um, if you saw Solarpunk as sort of fitting into any uh, ideas of political parties or movements that you've experienced.
2: No, I'm not. No, I don't. Not yet, anyway. I don't know if something like Solarpunk can fit in a, in a logic of like a party system necessarily. I'm not excluding it either, to be honest. Uh, there, there may be ways, and you know, usually for me party politics tends to dilute um, or reduce or you know tone down if you want uh, otherwise radical uh propositions or ideas, so maybe that happens but i'm not entirely sure if i um i see this as like the main direction or the main trajectory that solarpunk uh, is taking at this point i think to- solarpunk as of now and it's very it's still very young it's still very new' it's about just challenging these norms and then at some point if it becomes part of the mainstream quote-unquote cultural ethos. And I, I I do generally have a feeling that this is going to happen. Uh, and I think it is still, it is already happening. I mean, if not in like a very explicitly solo punk story, it could still be in a, in a story that is, let's say, apocalyptic or whatnot. But you have like a different philosophy that's now into it, which is actually about community, which is actually about making things better and, you know, stuff like that. Maybe once that happens in like, let's say five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is, then you will have a need for some other kind of punk to respond to that. You know, like I don't, I don't see this as like the, the solution for all of our problems forever. I see it specifically as a response to what's happening now. I'm hoping one day we don't need the punk anymore because punk is uh, by definition, like it's, you know, countercurrent. It's supposed to be challenging the norms and stuff like that. And if the norms are suddenly much better than they used to be when solar punk started, well, maybe we need something else now and that would be fine.
1: Yeah, I see solar punk as sort of a, a deliberate intervention in these ways of thinking in many different areas of life. And so just thinking about like, okay, how is solar punk sort of intervening in politics mm-hmm. to sort of speak back to the way that politics are happening in our world right now? I see lots of things, um, especially in the U.S. with the, the Green New Deal and, and that sort of thing. And it's kind of adjacent to solar punk, I would say. It's interesting the ways in which there, there are some people who would you know, say that anything within the current system of government that we have right now cannot really be solar punk at all. Solar punk demands a radical change.
2: it does but it's it's also like it's it expands that horizon right like i don't think there is a there i don't think there is a well it's not there yet kind of thing (laughs) it's more like almost like by by design you can't get there in terms of like a utopia but it's more making it more realistic making it more feasible to actually be there what you just make things better uh, and you know in that very simplistic way something else if that's okay like i wanted to add that Cyberpunk came at a very specific time, you know, it was a response to a pretty utopian vision of first man on the moon, the Jetsons, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, we'll have flying cars by the year 2000 and you know stuff like that. And at one point, at some point in the 70s and 80s, lots of folks started realizing well we're clearly not heading there. We're clearly not going in that direction. You know, obviously at the height of the Cold War and the nuclear threats and stuff like that. And so it it came at a it did it's it reached its it served its purpose, is what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. uh, in many ways. But cyberpunk was pre internet. It was kind of imagining the cyber, obviously, the, the internet phase, but for the most part, it was pre internet. It did not have, at least not to the same extent, interactive mode that solarpunk has. Like in many ways, we're talking now about solarpunk and we're sort of creating, we're talking about it while also creating it. In the sense that this is an internet phenomenon, this is a, or a phenomenon that came out of the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very f- interesting because it kind of breaks that dichotomy between, or oh, something has to be high tech or it has to be quote unquote nature friendly. You know, because that the whole point about cyberpunk, as uh, the person I keep on quoting and forgetting his name, so like it, it's high tech in low life. That's cyberpunk. That
0: would be William Gibson. No. Ariel would like to apologize for her brain fart. It was actually Bruce Sterling in his introduction to William Gibson's first book of stories, Burning Chrome.
2: And uh, whereas with solarpunk, it's, you know, uh, again, high life, if you want to put it that way. But when it comes to tech, it's like a question mark. Tech has to serve, has to serve a purpose, has to serve a need. If it makes healthcare better, cool, amazing. We like it. If it makes it worse, we don't want it. We want something else. You know, it can be changed. It's not like, as we're seeing now, obviously, kind of like a trend every two years. First, it's crypto, then it's AI, then it's whatnot. And then supposedly it's going to save everything. And clearly it doesn't. And so on and so forth. Like we, we want it to be more a purposeful. We want tech to have more of a purposeful dimension to it. Like we're creating something for a reason, for a purpose to make things better. And so that, that's what that's what I like about solar punk in, in a few words anyway.
1: In our email conversation while setting up this interview, uh, you mentioned that you host a climate anxiety drop-in Zoom chat. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could uh, talk a bit more about that um, and sort of introduce it to listeners for.
2: I had just put out a call on when I used to, Actually, still use Twitter uh, like a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. um, and saying that this is what I want to do. I want to have a at the time it was like once a month, and then we're we're doing it uh, twice twice a month now on a Sunday. Clearly, lots of folks are dealing with climate grief, climate anxiety, climate-related fears, and whatnot. And we should just talk about it. And what ends up happening, what ended up happening, is now we're kind of a group of like friends, or at least folks who really know one another, like a dozen or so from different walks of life. And not a lot unites us necessarily from the start. I mean, obviously, there's like a, we're all left leaning, uh, as as kind of like by default, maybe. But for the most part, the, the thing we have in common is that we're really worried about a huge, a hyper object, as, as some might call it, like a huge thing that is very difficult to wrap our hands, heads around most of the time. And It just makes it a bit easier to talk about it. Uh, Not always. Sometimes when we talk about it, we can actually worsen each other's anxieties. So we have to be uh, mindful of how we talk about it as well, because then it's like doom and gloom, and we're just reinforcing, you know, the worst aspects of things um, for one another. And so I've been finding it as an interesting, like, an experiment. You know, it's been going on for I think a couple of years now. It allows me to digest in many ways, or like to process uh, certain. Fears and anxieties that I've had uh, during, let's say, the, the couple of weeks that preceded that that uh, session or whatever, and anyone can do it. That's the magical thing about it: is that we have the internet, uh, and most folks have it at least to some. To, obviously, there's like an accessibility issue in parts of the world, but in a good chunk of the world, and it's kind of increasing every day, most folks can connect. And this is, and it doesn't have to be only that topic, of course. Sometimes we just talk about random things. It doesn't have to be just like today, we talk about the climate, you know, it's more like this is the overall overarching theme. There's this thing that I found very interesting, I should say that when we know what the overarching theme is, even if we don't talk about it, it makes it easier to process it later on. I've, I have found this very interesting, like if I'm with a bunch of friends, and as I said, I'm from Lebanon, and those friends are also from Lebanon. And let's say have left in, in a similar circumstance, like uh, escaping the crisis and, and whatnot. Clearly, lots of anxieties are there, lots of PTSD in some cases and stuff like that. If we all meet and we talk about, I mean, Lebanon probably comes up at some point, almost like by by default. Mm-hmm. But then we choose, okay, we don't want to talk about this. Like that's enough. We have this terminology like خلاص like enough. Mm-hmm. And we want to talk about other stuff now. It makes it easier to be in a Lebanon related space, like literally with other Lebanese, and then makes it also easier to think about Lebanon. And even if, again, we, we went in a complete tangent and talked about it, but the tangent might change from place to place or from group of people to another. But then, given that the, these individuals were there or were kind of united by that specific or by, by that u- unique, if you want, uh, circumstance, it makes that circumstance easier to to deal with it's not as atomizing or isolating and i would say this is a solar punk conclusion in many ways or one that i think i've reached based from all you know based out of all of those stories that i've read that are and well the only thing we have in common is that there is an apocalypse right now that's the only thing we have in common so it brought us together so what do we do about it you know that's that's octavia butler's premise right and in the parable of the Sower. Like, what do we do about it now? And I've been finding that, like, it's literally like an endless series of possibilities just Mm -hmm. pop up just from that realization.
1: You say you don't have anything in common, but I think what you have in common is your common humanity Um, and the the common experience of being alive on the planet at this particular time in the late Anthropocene, Mm -hmm. just kind of dealing with all the shit that's just happening worldwide so
2: yeah exactly i mean uh, uh, three years of covid in like i'm assuming in like three decades or whatnot uh, it would be the almost like a generational thing like oh the covid generation or the people that went through it or mm-hmm. do you remember when this used to be the case and whatnot and you will even have i can guarantee you this uh, people romanticizing the covid years people saying okay. well we we had it better we were all connected we were all you know working on the same you know wavelength and whatnot because uh one thing i found from like studying a lot of civil war stuff including the lebanese one is that you have folks that miss the war you have folks that really say like, we we were together you know the blitz spirit as they would say in the uk you know we we had we we understood that we were all fighting the same enemy or the same problem assuming we're not nazis or we're not militiamen (laughs) uh you know we're just civilians or whatever we know that we know why things are tough, like in Ukraine yeah. right now. We know why, what is happening, and Ukrainians have been talking about this for over a year now. That people are coming together and they're working together, and you know they're not as again they cannot be capitalistic in a situation like this because yeah. it doesn't make sense. We would all die if that's the case. We need to come together, and we understand this as humans. That's Rebecca Solnit's book, A Paradise Built in Hell. I was uh, just
1: thinking about that book. I was going to bring it up a few days.
2: Perfect. You know, but that's that's the premise, right? That we there is this idea of a dog eat dog world and whatnot, which is funny because dogs don't even do that. But uh, you know, like, well, things are bad, therefore, clearly, you know, it's that whole American prepper male thing, you know, we're gonna shoot each other, we're gonna I'm gonna have my bazooka in my dorm room or whatever in my bedroom. I mean. And that's not what people do because it's dumb to do that. <laughs> it makes no sense to do that. You can't so you can maybe, you know, stay live in your bunker for a week, but at some point you're gonna get bored. <laughs> You need other stuff to do. You need to talk to people and whatnot. And even in the apocalyptic movies, for the most part, you will have, right, like the community that uh, found a way to isolate themselves from the virus or from the zombies or from the whatever. And they are living together. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the point. It doesn't work if you're on your own. It's, it's not a life that anyone actually wants. And they always think that they are the survivor. You watch a movie like, what's the one with Will Smith? I forgot his name. I am- um, yeah, yeah, I am legend. And most folks, when they watch that movie, think, sees themselves as Will Smith in that story. Right. You're, you're the person that survives. Uh, and there's a male element to this as well, obviously. You don't see yourself as like the 10,000 people that died in the first five minutes of that movie.
1: Right, yeah.
2: <laughs> but statistically, <laughs> you're one of those. <laughs> statistically, you're not Will Smith. You, you, yeah. You're gone by the first, for the first five minutes, right?
1: Um, do you have a goal for your group or just these overarching themes um
2: does there um, really have to be one do you find no there doesn't have to be one at one point if there's like 10 of you and four of you happen to live in london which was the case in in, in our chat they said at one point hey clearly we live in the same city we're talking about this thing every two weeks why don't we meet up and they did and that is that simple it almost like it doesn't need to be planned. You can add some intention, uh, intentions to it and say, well, clearly we've been doing this. What 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 if we meet, guys? What if we do this or whatnot?" I've been and on the Signal group first started as a Twitter DM group and then we moved to Signal when we understood that Twitter is not safe. And we we didn't have again didn't that much in common when we started. We had this very specific grief of mm-hmm. like lefties on the internet that we would now call tankies that were like uh, apologists of authoritarian regimes. In our case was Syria. We were talking about Syria a lot. So it was a bunch of Syrians, Lebanese, some not, like some Americans and whatnot, that saw this huge problem and saw other people that saw this problem. And they kind of came together based on that. We started chatting. Mm-hmm. And at one point, we created a signal group um, that's now three or four years old. We gave ourselves a ridiculous name uh, mm-hmm. just for, for the fun of it. And also in case the phone is hacked, (laughs) just Mm -hmm. in case, but you know, for the fun of it. And we met last uh, a few months ago, some of us anyway, or like eight of us met like in Paris a few months ago. And now, you know, we're friends and we talk about stuff and it's no longer the thing that brought us in common, brought us together, right? That was effectively like a traumatic thing. There is such a thing as trauma bonding and that can kickstart a relationship but it shouldn't define it for or forever you know at some point there has to be something that's transformative or healing or something that actually you want to be in you don't want to just meet your friend every day the friend that reminds you of that trauma it doesn't make sense it, it's just not uh, sustainable so yeah all of this to say that like as long as you just create the structure to create a community a community will build itself uh, almost almost instinctively Uh, i i would say like add some intention to it like try and build it at first at least to kickstart it and then it will kind of create itself and we find this again in all of the movies series that people usually like like gilmore girls and something i watched (laughs) recently people just come together because they live in this community that has the structure of a community i.e. like there is a gazebo that's in the center there is a, a building that's for like a meeting place every month and so people go to the meeting place because it's literally a meeting place it's yeah. where you meet <laughs> <laughs> and um that's why it's so interesting in solarpunk punk situations just to go back to our main topic mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it has to do with like doing something with the world we live in with the community we live in with the city we live in the village we live in whatever it is it's usually at like a smaller scale because that's easier for like storytelling purposes but I imagine like I have, I live on this uh, street that's like a one-way street. Mm-hmm. I sort of imagine it has like, I'm going to guess 300 people living here. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it's just like in a, a bunch of apartment complexes, very uh, working class, very uh, diverse, my, mostly migrant background like myself. I would imagine that there's a lot of things we have in common. What if we turn this neighborhood into something else? Clearly, this can look nicer. It's all gray. Does it have to be gray? it's it's cemented uh, mostly for cars does it have to be this way and the answer obviously is no so let's let's create that imagine imaginary essentially like what literally what could it look like if it didn't look that way i'm not very skillful i'm not skillful enough to be able to go on photoshop or uh co or whatever it is or just literally draw what i imagine it could be but statistically someone in this neighborhood knows how to do that <laughs> like it's just it's just It's just you have enough of a population, you know, of certain number, whatever that number is, you will have people that have different skills, different interests, different whatnot. At some point, you will find someone who will meet the need that that community needs, right? Like, will be able to actually serve that the person who's the cook, the person who cleans the person and doesn't have to be one role per person. You can then, you know, alternate or whatnot. And so it's very interesting to just think of it that way, because the alternative is just silos of people that go to work uh, work from home and then after work go to the space maybe and hang out with friends or whatnot and then go Mm -hmm. home and then kind of repeat ad nauseum until you're dead Mm -hmm. and I don't think it's I don't necessarily think this is the only way to live clearly it isn't and not everyone even lives this way even today you have lots of Mm -hmm. folks that do live in communities and whatnot I'm just trying to like think of like what would that look like If you have both the local and the global at the same time, like things that are working, how do you scale it up? Does it look the same at a local level as it does on a national level? Probably not. Probably other things start happening, you know?
1: It's true that not everybody has the skills or talents to do everything. And that's okay because all humans <laughs> yeah like nobody does um yeah, yeah. but that's the great thing about being in community is that when large groups of humans get together then large groups of people who have different types of expertise get together and you are able to connect people to creating change right so
2: yeah i i think i think it was market killjoy that gave this example on one of her podcasts like you have the pepper people uh, that like you know i'm gonna I'm going to know all of the skills and I'm going to just be my own as this, you know, whatever. It's usually an American thing, but there is a global dimension to it as well. And it tends to be very gendered. It tends to be like male, Mm -hmm. uh, male identifying, but there's like a fundamental flaw in this individualist prepper narrative, which is that quite literally you cannot know everything and you cannot actually survive on your own. It's not a thing that actually happens for the most part. And even if it is, that's not a, That's not a fun life. It's not as exciting as you think it is. It's actually mostly difficult. What's easier than trying to, if you're not a doctor and trying to understand everything about the human body and whatnot, and also at the same time, trying to learn skills of like, I'm I'm imagining like the classic prepper scenario of like hunting and fishing and also growing stuff and building houses and whatnot. What's easier is to have like four friends that know a bit of those. Yeah. <laughs> it's just easier to do that. Get one friend who is a doctor and you're good. <laughs> you know, you're good to go. There's a so reason yeah, that humans yeah. live
1: in, you know, like groups, like villages and stuff like that. Yes. Like that's kind yes. of, it's kind of, kind of how we do.
2: <laughs> kind of how we do it. And it's, there's a reason for it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, You know, like real and realizing that realizing the strength in community and, and that, you know, Humans generally like to be around other humans and like to help other humans, um, yep. I think, is a very solar punk way of starting to reframe our vision of even just our neighbors, but also our, our communities and the people that we come in contact with from day to day. Everybody is part of a community. And what does that community look like?
0: And that's a wrap for episode 3.4 of Solarpunk Presence. Be sure to catch Joey's podcast, The Fire of These Times, which you can find at thefireofthesetimes.com. Thank you for listening to Solar Funk Presence, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the neutral Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. And in Germany. The opening and closing music for this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol, available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, join our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash solarpunkpresence or share the podcast
1: with friends, family, and people you know who might be interested in our guests and what we have to say. We'd also love it if you could write us a nice review on your podcatcher of choice, because every review bumps us higher in the algorithm's priority, so we can reach more listeners. Until the next episode, keep dreaming
0: and keep up the good work.